Good morning, church. Our teaching text this morning is from the Gospel according to John, chapter 14, verses 15 through 27. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will, will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and he will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. How's everyone? Great, great. Pretty average, all right. That's fine. Um, I cannot remember uh, what I did to celebrate my 27th birthday. Um, I don't know if you can remember what you did to celebrate your 27th, um, but I do remember uh, <laughs> what I did to celebrate my 30th um, because well, 30 is just a, you know, it's a more important number than 27. Let me just say that. Numbers have ranks, okay? Let's just establish that. Um, okay, I'm kidding. They don't. Relax, everyone. Everyone's a little tense this morning. That's fine. Um, my 30th birthday, my wife was taking me out for dinner, and I'm like, I was a little bit kind of disappointed as the day went on. Do you ever have that? You're like, I don't have any expectations for what this party should be like. It's fine. Like, I don't care. Like, I'm laid back about this. But then, like, nothing had happened the whole day, really, and we're sort of just going out to dinner, her and I. I'm like, you kind of know that I'm, like, extroverted and like to be around people, and this is what you've planned. This sort of seems like your 30th birthday. Um, <laughs> And uh, we go to this place, Rebar, it's actually closed now or changed ownership or something down in Dumbo. And we go in, we go up to our table and we go into this room and then there's like a hundred of my closest friends. I don't have a hundred closest friends, but it's like 30 of my closest friends and then like 70 seat fillers that she found somehow. Um, and they all scream surprise and we have like this massive dance party. And it's one of my favorite moments in all of my time in New York City. Like uh, she did all this work behind the scenes and planned this unbelievable party for me. And my 30th birthday was this epic moment. I have no idea how I celebrated my 31st birthday. And yet 40 is just around, around the corner for me. And 
what, what happens around these moments of our life where we start to take stock and we start to say, hang on a minute, this is, this is a little bit of a marker. We do it around graduation. A student is, is coming to the end of their education. We do it, uh, you know, it happens to us sort of, you know, we call it a crisis in midlife when it, all these questions about where am I compared to where I thought I was gonna be come crashing in on us. We have this sort of set time in our culture around January 1st where we say, okay, what, what's this next year gonna be like? We try to take stock. We have these turning point moments in our lives where we ask, what am I going to be and who am I going to be and how am I living my life compared to what I thought my life would look like compared to what my, my deepest, truest hopes are. And there just happen to be moments that are more significant. Obviously, you know, my, my 27th year was no less important in my life really than my 30th year, but there are markers that you come up to. And when you approach them, they start to sort of raise the volume on those internal questions of what's going on? How am I living? What, what, what do I wanna be about? How does my actual life match up with what I say that I'm about? And so we're at one of those points in our church's life. We, I, we basically did nothing to celebrate nine years as a church, even though it was super, it was great to have made it nine years and to be living out this vision together. But 10 years, whew, nice round number. Um, we're, we're asking these questions about who are we as a congregation? We're, we're trying uh, with... Uh, uh, depending on the Holy Spirit, asking God's direction to say, what can we cast a 10-year vision for our life as a church? And we're unpacking the most basic elements of that over, over, over this month of September. As we celebrated 10 years as a church, we're trying to say, what are we gonna be most primarily about as a community? And I think if you're, you've been with us for a long time, this will be helpful, be, cl- be clarifying. But also, if you're just joining us, this, this will help you know what we're about as a church. And so the, the, the last two weeks, weeks, we've talked about the first parts of, of this 10-year vision, and this we're going to come to the third part this week, but you saw it on the screen as I was coming up, presence, formation, and love. We're seeking to be individuals, uh, families, communities, uh, friends, a church where God's presence is our priority. God's presence is in the middle of, of everything that we do. We're seeking God's presence. We're seeking it even at, at First, the way Jesus describes seeking God first and having him in his, his presence. Now, there's this reality that God is everywhere, right? And so uh, what we're talking about specifically is the manifestation of, 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 of God making it known that he is near to us. That's something we're, we're longing for, we're praying for. It is our delight, it is our joy. So we're a church that is about the presence of God. The second thing is we, we're seeking to be a church that's Um, walking in the way of Jesus, apprenticing under Jesus through the practices of our lives. Not just arranging the mental furniture in our brains to say we think the right things about God, but that we are... We are being formed in the way of Jesus. And here's the reality. You don't have a choice on spiritual formation, whether you're going to participate in it or not. You are being spiritually formed, right? Your mind and heart and deepest desires and longings and how you live those out and patterns and habits, you're doing that whether God is involved in them or not. You have a spirit, therefore you are being engaged in spiritual formation. So we're trying to say we wanna prioritize and emphasize being formed as as people and as a community in the way of Jesus. And thirdly, we come to... uh, our lives have to have an outflow. Basically, like our seeking the presence of God, our, trying, our, our seeking to be spiritually formed in the way of Jesus is not just so that like the cocoon of our lives is peaceful. 
We have to have an outflow, an expression, which, which uh, comes up in the New Testament over and over again, all, all throughout the arc of the scriptures as, as love, basically as love in action. So I really want to encourage you, if you missed the last two weeks where we talked about presence and formation, go on the podcast and listen to them. They're going to be central. Those are central building blocks for where we're going over the next 10 years, and you're here for this one. So great. Jesus at the end. John 14 is Jesus. Um, it's, it's part of the final, like, extended discourse that Jesus has with his disciples before he goes, before he's betrayed and arrested and goes to the cross and dies, before the resurrection, before his ascension, before in a sense he hands them the kingdom of God and says, I want you to carry this into, into the, all the parts of the world and, and demonstrate this life. Before that happens, he has this time of extending, extended teaching with them where he's pouring out his heart to them. And right at the top of the text that we just read, Jesus with his disciples at the end says this, if you love me, keep my commandments. This reality shows up all through the Gospels, uh, but it's not just like it ends at the, when the four biographies of Jesus' life are over. This carries through. Like Paul, the, uh, one of the other more dominant voices in, in the New Testament, he's writing to these churches that are forming around the way of Jesus in these, these cities in the Roman Empire. And this, so the way of Jesus is just beginning to get traction in these small communities in Galatia and, Cor- and Corinth and Ephesus and Philippi. And he writes these letters to spur them on and to encourage them and to remind them of the essential nature of what it is to follow Jesus. And Paul writing to the church at Galatia in chapter five, he says, the thing that matters most, like there's all these religious expressions that you're arguing over what's important and what's not important as these different communities are trying to find a way to come around the table together, even though they come from wildly different places. And what he says is the thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That your life has to have an outflow, that we're not just about arranging the mental furniture of our brains to think correctly about God. The central reality of love is the utmost importance, is of the utmost importance to our life with God and to one another. And my guess is you believe that before you came in here. Most of you thought that already. Like, the Beatles think that, right? All you need is love. This is, this is like the central, like we have no problem with that as, as a premise. We need love in the center of our hearts, in the center of our lives. That sounds great. Whether you're dealing with like a 90s rom-com or you're dealing with Jesus, we're sort of like on board to accept that as reality. But that means if, if love really is central of utmost important to our experience as human beings, then that means we need to pay pretty careful attention to what we let pass in our minds and hearts for love. Because our culture, if, if you pay really close attention to it, especially when it's trying to sell you something, it will peddle a version of love to you that's substantially reduced from whatever it is that Christ is talking about, from actually even from the greatest wisdom traditions of, of, human, of human experience, what our culture often peddles to us as love is a significant reduction from that. And so when we're dealing with the, the promises of this huge central of, of, of primary importance reality, love, but actually what we get is sort of like um, vague marketing, and we sort of uh, begin over time to absorb that message and we sort of take a reduced vision of love. It really impacts our life because, hang on, I thought it was this, but my experience is, is a lot more shallow, a lot more dry. I'm sort of more at the center of this version of love than, than, 
then over here, and, I, and I'm like, hang on a minute. And we need these, these moments in our life, graduation, the first of the year, your 30th birthday, your 60th birthday, to say, hang on. What am I really doing here? How am I really experiencing this? If you take infatuation and you call it love, that's a problem, right? Infatuation needs to be infatuation. Like you can begin to be attracted to someone. That's really powerful. That might be the beginnings of what will grow into love. But when you make that the thing, you, you, you're, in, you're in danger, right? When you make lust, right, even more, like you begin to make the separation of the person's body from the person's soul, the, the expression of love, that, that's, a, that's a problem. Like if I just look at you as what I can get from your body, all of a sudden my vision of love begins to be significantly diminished because I'm only taking a sliver of you, a slice of you, and I'm asking that to meet some need in myself. And actually, that's a sort of twisted and bastardized version of what, the, what, what, what at least Jesus is talking about when he says love. So we can't, we can't accept when our culture says infatuation and lust are love, even if there are some sprinkling in at the beginnings of romantic love, right? That doesn't work when you're talking about parent to child love or like the, the, whatever you're gonna use as your, as your most base definition of love, it needs to work in all these different contexts, right? So infatuation and lust don't work for love. I, honestly, here's another one that doesn't quite work. Sometimes we make love in our culture out to simply be affirmation. Like, you love me if you accept whatever I happen to be choosing in this given moment. And that does, like, it's an overcorrection. It's not, it's not explicitly wrong, but it's an overcorrection because if you're constantly, whatever the opposite of affirmation is, if you're constantly beating someone down, if you're constantly sort of sitting in a posture of judgment, then you at least need to bring in grace and the, and the possibility of understanding their story and seeing where they're coming from. Affirmation is a sliver. It is a color in the, in the palette of, of, of love. But when you make affirmation everything, Basically, if you don't affirm everything that I choose, you don't love me, maybe even that you hate me, right? We're, we're accepting a vision of love that doesn't really work across the spectrum. In, in, a bunch of, in a bunch of situations, that doesn't necessarily work. Or, or agreement, right? Like this is one of, like we're, we're at a crossroads, it feels like, in our world. Maybe we've been at a crossroads for a while and we're a little far, far down the wrong way, <laughs> at that crossroads, but when you make agreement necessary for love, right, you lose the possibility of having civil discourse about important matters, right? That you can say, I think this and you think this and those things are different and yet I love you, right? We can all agree wherever we are on the spectrum that that's an important societal reality, <laughs> that we, we can't accept a, ver a version of love that just is agreement. So it's not just affirmation, it's not just even affection, it's not simply attraction, it's more than affirmation, it's more than agreement. So, so what, what is love? Sometimes we act as if you can experience the depths of love, but still remain radically autonomous in your tribe that's just like you, and kind of remain selfish. There's a difference between capitalist market realities of if, you do the, if your company does the, be, the best for itself, it will do the best for, for your neighbor. There's something different from that than what the scripture's talking about when it says agape love, the love of God expressed in a human being. So 
If love is the central reality that Jesus is talking about that seems to make up the, the nature of the universe according to how the scriptures lays it out, we need to be very careful that we don't accept some cheaper, shallower version because what happens is that reduces our capacity to live full lives. Do you see that? It's not about like you failed the religious standard. It's you accepted a shallower version of love and therefore reduced your capacity to experience love. Reduced your capacity to experience the bliss of self-forgetfulness. That if your version of love can crown selfishness at the center and be attraction or, or lust or only by agreement or affirmation, right? then you miss the, 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 the deep well that the bliss of self-forgetfulness is, that pouring your life out for someone else actually is. this counterintuitive nature that God's love works in the world contrary to our culture at so many points. So what that does is we stunt our potential growth. We remove several vibrant colors from the, from the color wheel, from the palette, I'll say it one more simple way. If you only know the exhilaration of attraction and you never get to the deep safety that comes in commitment, and I'm not simply talking about marriage. This, this is true in friendship, in deep and lasting community if you're gonna build it. You're only gonna know a sliver of love. Like if you only sort of know that infatuation stage of friendship or that infatuation stage of a romantic relationship and you don't get to the peace and safety of deep commitment, which is essentially covenant love where you start to say to someone else, not on a contract basis, I'm only gonna do the right by you if you do right by me. That's a contract relationship versus a covenant relationship saying, even if you fail to do right by me, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stick it out. Now, right, is there, is there messiness in that? Is there massive need for forgiveness and reconciliation? Do we need to work it out? Is there the potential to be significantly taken advantage of? Yes, Jesus ended up on the cross in demonstrating covenant love, but covenant love is the love of God expressed. It is the deepest, most joyful, most fulfilling aspect of human life, and if we shortchange it, and then we're like, what is up with this faith thing? It seems really disappointing. If I only show love when I can see how it will directly benefit me, then I miss a huge part of what it is to be human. Say that one more time. If you only demonstrate love when you can see how it will directly benefit you, you miss a huge part of what it is to be human. So, what is love? This third piece of our vision sounds nice, goes good on cards. I, I just took a stab at a definition that well, you can poke holes in because there's holes in it, but this is starting to get in the direction of where I think Jesus is talking about here, that love is coming to so care for another person that you want what is truly best for their lives, even if it cuts against what you want in a given moment. That you want what is truly best for their lives, what would make them thrive and flourish and, and come most fully alive so that anything that would come into their life, right, you see this as a parent, like anything that's coming into my child's life that I can see on the long run is gonna significantly diminish their capacity to flourish as a human being, I wanna remove that. And ha now, that's what it is. Love is wanting that, love is desiring that, love is prioritizing that. Now having the wisdom to know, here's how you deal with that reality in a bully situation in middle school. Here's how you deal with that reality in a nutrition, you know, a nutrition situation over time in my home. Here's how I deal with that reality, whatever it is, right? 
But love is wanting what is truly best for that person, even when it cuts against the moods and circumstances of my everyday. My friend, my spouse, my child, my older parent, my neighbor, that I begin to prioritize their thriving, the very best thing in their life. The Trinity, right? God's character in and of itself begins to show us what love is. That somehow, we say this all the time, a being up the sort of degrees of beinghood that, that we have, somehow God is able to be three in one. So in God's very nature is community, is love, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, moving out towards one another, honoring one another, deferring to one another, pouring out for one another. This is what you see in the Trinity. It is an expression of love. Somehow God, the most powerful being in the world, doesn't center his being around power, but centers his being around love, to be moving out towards the other. We know love, right? You know what it is to make a sacrifice to lift, lift someone up. You know what it is to delight in their presence just for their presence. You know what it is to cherish someone. You know what it is when someone that you cherish is driving you absolutely bananas and you have to do the forgiveness thing. Those are expressions in the full color palette of what love is. So, Jesus says, if you love me, come around once a week and sing, sing me some songs, please. And make sure they're fresh. Keep them, keep them fresh if you can. Check out some Spotify playlists. Make sure you, I don't want to hear the same songs, honestly, all the time. No, of course not, right? If you asked any of these disciples who were listening to Jesus if they loved him, <laughs> they would have absolutely said yes. My guess, if I ask you guys in this room, so, somewhere in a very high percentage of you would say, yes, I love Jesus. But Jesus locates what love is in a place that's a little bit different than just what we say. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you ask these disciples who are listening to Jesus, would you be willing to show up once a week to hear a message about this man, to sing this man's songs, absolutely they're in on that. Yes, I would do that, and yet Jesus locates love in a slightly different place. If, they, if you ask them, would you be willing to show kindness to someone that you like or someone that you feel sorry for from time to time, as long as it wasn't too inconvenient, they would say, yes, I'm in on that version of love as well. I will take that for 900, Alex. But Jesus says, if you love me, if you truly care for me and want what is best in spite of your passing moods and circumstances, then live in the way that I've been teaching and showing you. That's where Jesus locates the expression of love for those who are his followers. If you love me, keep my commandments. So what's the next question? For me, it's like, what are the commandments of Jesus? Where do, I, where do I start with that? And it's very simple. You can find these in the Gospels. If you want to be like, okay, I want to know what it means to practice loving Jesus. It's more than just coming to church you know, every week or, or, or once or twice a month and singing Jesus songs. It means following his commands. It means following the way he, he demonstrated and that he taught. What does that look like? You can find them in the Gospels. You can move through the Gospels. Like how on earth can we be followers of Jesus in that formative process living in the dust of the rabbi if we're not immersing ourselves in the Gospels? We have to be reading them. 
This is not like slap your hand. This is like how on earth can we express our love if we're not immersed in the story of our Savior? No guilt, no shame. I'm right there with you. The first command of Jesus when he shows up in the Gospel of Mark is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And in a sense, that sort of forms an umbrella under which all the rest of the commandments are going to fit. What is he saying? Repent is a word that's been distorted in, in, in our religious understanding to some degree. Like you hear it shouted in a megaphone in the subway. Repent means to reorient your life. You are going in one direction, go in another direction. It means to reorient your life around the reality that God's kingdom is breaking in, that God's kingdom is possible. That's how Jesus starts this, his commandments, his new constitution of love and freedom in the world. The kingdom of God, what is it? Dallas Willard said it's the range of God's effective will. The kingdom of God, when it shows up, is a place where God's will is being done. This person was sick and they're being made well. This person was confused and they're led into understanding and clarity. This, this, this person has been broken and ridden by this addiction for so long and they're coming out into freedom. So, two quick things to mention. Jesus describes the kingdom of God and demonstrates the kingdom of God. If you want to hear his description, where a bunch of his, his, his practical instruction for how to live in the world, as complex as it is, you see them in the Sermon on the Mount and in the parables. This is a new pattern for life. Jesus says, I have come not to abolish the law of Moses. All that has come before, I'm fulfilling. And I'm teaching you what the expression of that looks like in your time, in, in your place. So the description of the kingdom of God, the description of the commands that Jesus is laying out, you find them in the Sermon on the Mount and the parables. The demonstration of them, which is also important, you need to see what they look like lived out, is in the miracles and the narrative of his life. So you see Jesus not just giving the Sermon on the Mount, you see him getting up before anyone else is up and going to a solitary place and pouring out his heart to the Father. You, you, you see him getting accolades in one particular town and yet leaving that, although his PR agent is screaming and pulling his hair out saying, we have to stay here, he says, I'm going to the next town because that's what I've come for. There are always people that need to be in, included and brought into this story. So... We have the description and then we have the demonstration. So now, I'm just, this is gonna be so simple. I'm just gonna give you examples of Jesus' commandments. If you love me, keep my commands. Well, what on earth is he commanding? We have this broad sense of here's what he described and here's what he demonstrated and here's a couple things that come out. You just move through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching this is how we love. It's not just I want you to feel affection for me from time to time. That is not love. That's feeling affection from time to time. Nice, important if you can get it, not love. Reconciliation. When you come to worship, but you know there's conflict between you and someone else, you need to prioritize the working out of that conflict in order bef before you just carry on. Like, it, Jesus is like, I do not like it when you sing me songs, when in your heart, you're harboring anger and malice towards your neighbor. When you refuse to forgive them, like I'm pouring out forgiveness on your life, and you're like, I love your forgiveness, it's seriously the best. And then you won't bend that grace to your neighbor. Jesus says, no, that's a problem. The way you show your love for me is go to them and work out this reconciliation. So there's personal ways that that happens. There's cultural ways that that happens, right? There's systemic brokenness in, in, in the American system that we need to deal with. You know, like, we're, we're, we're dealing with this showing up all, all, all the time. Like, 
in our country, it's like half the population played the first half of the game with their hands behind their back. It's 125 to zero. And people are like, oh, that's gone now. Why isn't everyone just operating on the same page? No, we have to go back and make some things right. We have to practice reconciliation. We have to say, I'm going to move and out of my privilege and into your space and say, how can I serve you and, and see you lifted up and see, see you brought back from this place? Like, there's individual realities. There's corporate systemic realities. There's areas that we have to move into as a church. Lust, Jesus says, it's, uh, it's more than about what you do with your body. He's like, the way you view another human being deals with this reality of lust. And lust is essentially the tearing apart of body and soul. It's like, give me your body, I want nothing to do with your soul or spirit. And he's saying, when you look at another person and you try to tear apart their being, that's a huge problem. It's not just, did you sleep with someone that wasn't your spouse? It's, did you, did you objectify them? Did you participate in a systemic industry that objectifies and crushes people's bones into powder, right? The pornography industry makes more money than, than, than medicine in our country. This, I'm not saying this to put shame and guilt on you. I'm saying we have to wake up and say to love Jesus is to express the life that he calls us to in action, love in action. He says we have to transform our anger, our right to revenge through kindness. If someone slaps you in the face, right, what do you do? Make a two-hour movie of getting revenge on them and their whole family. That's the American story, right? Show how you utterly dominated them. That's a wrestling move. I've never done that in the history of our church. He says, turn the other cheek. He says, they, take, they, they, they ask you to go a mile with them, go the extra mile. Like, transform these cycles of anger and violence through the most unexpected means possible through kindness. I love that. Until someone smacks me in the face. And then I want to go Liam Neeson on them. I love it till someone smacks my child in the face. Then I want to put them, their parents in the back of a trunk and drive them out to Jersey and duct tape them to a chair and just have a talk. <laughs> but that's, that's the flesh. That's not... That's not the way of Jesus at all. Like I have to, to allow the spirit to begin to transform me out of these, these realities that have been ingrained in me. I have been spiritually formed to feel like revenge is my right when I've been wronged. My own father, God bless him and may he rest in peace, he, he deposited me a picture of masculinity that was, you. he was like, if you're gonna fight, hit them first, win. Do not get in a fight and lose, that is very painful. And I'm having to unpack that reality. Like he's trying to do his best. And I know he didn't have the best example. His dad just hit him. And then he, what he passes on to me and I have to unpack it and see how do I see it in the light of Jesus? I'm not, I, what I mean to say is it's not super simple to be like, oh, now I'm just going to go from prayer and Bible reading in the morning to practicing reconciliation, transforming cycles of violence through kindness. It, it's very challenging, <laughs> Love your enemies? What? No, thank you. You don't even know how to start with that? Bless them. 
right? Someone that you're seething to mention their name, you can't speak about them, not through gritted teeth, start by trying just to bless them. I can't stand them, but God, would you show them favor? Would you show your love to them today? Oh, that's it, that's all I can do. Just start by blessing them, and what happens is this sort of seed of the gospel gets planted, and it grows up into reconciliation and transformation, and it's not super simple. It needs to continue to be watered, but I'm just giving you examples. Here's another one. Jesus says, have a secret life of devotion. Pray and fast and give and don't tell anyone about it. Do not put it on Instagram with a filter. Do not, do not make a retrospective of all the good that you've done. Right? This is so challenging for us. Do the good and don't tell anyone about it. Ask, seek, knock. On a regular basis, be imploring God to move in the world. Here's the one that shows up over and over again, a command of Jesus, invite the poor in. When you plan a party, don't just invite people that are exactly like you and that make you comfortable. Find a way to invite people in who, who, who are in need. Move into their story, right? If you're wondering, I'm sitting in the pews with you. It's not like I'm nailing this and like, come, let me show you my, 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 my photo album of great spiritual accomplishment. I, I want to grow in this. Leave the final conclusions about people to God. That's what it, it says when he says, don't judge other people. Don't put them in a box and say, you can't change anymore. I've labeled you, therefore I can dismiss you. We are so good at that as a culture. Read the comment sections on, on the internet. Actually, never do. But what you'll see is we label one another so we can dismiss one another. Jesus is saying, don't do that. I'll, I'll have the final word on someone's life and it will be, it'll go through the filter of my love and mercy that literally died for them. Much better. Come and find rest in Jesus. That's another one. My yoke is easy, my burden is like, come to me and find rest. So those are the examples. There's a bunch more. There's like 50 commands of Jesus and what they are, they, they fit into specific areas of life. I'll give you a couple of categories really quickly as we're wrapping up. There's personal holiness, which holiness is a word we need to reclaim a little bit because we've made it into sort of stodgy religious rule keeping and being prideful about it. But actually holiness in the scriptural vision is the most free, vibrant, creative, full, like producing life that there is. It is a life in full union with God where uninterrupted you are expressing that love by following his way. So there's personal holiness, the expression of your faith and action. Then there's prayer, the expression of your conversation with God. And there's a bunch of commandments about here's how you pray, here's what you pray, here's who to pray for, here's words to use if you don't know which words to use. There's categories of personal holiness, there's prayer, there's forgiveness and reconciliation. No matter how great our ideals are, we're gonna run into real conflict with one another. We have to have a way to move through that conflict without killing one another, literally. Forgiveness and reconciliation or without abandoning one another. Another is public witness. Jesus is like, if you got a light, let it shine. You're like a city on a hill. Don't be ashamed of me. I tell you what, the rest of your coworkers are not ashamed about their life. Right? They'll come out and tell, tell you about their one night stand in glowing detail and you don't want to be like, yeah, I went to a church thing this weekend. <laughs> right? We've sort of been pushed into this cultural corner where we're a little bit embarrassed to identify, but you don't have to know all the answers to every theological question. You can say the love of God has changed my life in a significant way. I'm trying to make sense of it. Hey, come on out to church or, or tell a little bit of your story. 
radical generosity, care for the poor, is a measurement that is in both testaments as to whether or not we're aligned with the heart of God. Are we caring for the poor? I'm talking about the person that you pass, yes, but I'm also talking about like systemic brokenness in our city and how do we address it together beyond you know, one particular interaction, even though we can't diminish either of those spaces. The ministry of Jesus is another category. What do you see Jesus doing? Be with Jesus. Become like Jesus. Do what Jesus did. So we are called to love and action. Now, I, this is my sermon. I look at that list and I'm like, this is overwhelming. It's very challenging. Yesterday my wife sent me, uh, I had to go with my son to his baseball game. So I miss my four-year-old soccer game. Wife sends me a video of his first goal. Now the playing style in four-year-old soccer is, I, it's like post-apocalyptic bread shortage. <laughs> That's the style. Everyone's huddled around, there's not enough to eat and it's like we're trying to get it and we're just like moving in a massive bunch. All of a sudden, Champ, yes I named my fourth son Champ, he's our fourth, we were out of names. Um, Gets the ball, and he's just running down the field. It's like amazing. And he, get, he kicks it into the goal, and he's like, just post-apocalyptic score. Um, and I'm like beaming as, as a dad. And yet I have, I have experienced youth sports now for, for 13 years. And what I have seen is in the beginning, it is a massive mess, a post-apocalyptic bread shortage situation. When, my, when my, my kids play t-ball, right? Both my older sons play travel baseball now. When they're beginning and they're trying to like get the glove to work, and like the ball misses and just hits them in the face, and they're just like, that's it, I'm done forever. Like, last night I'm watching professional baseball, and I'm seeing, right, they're throwing, they're catching, they're hitting, they're fielding, they're ne they know where to go. There's like 16 essential skills in the game, and I've watched my kids over these years learn the very basics. Throwing and catching and running and hitting and stealing. They get signs. They learn how to bunt. And then eventually, years later, they can participate in the full game. Some of you are like, you look at the whole game. You've never played at all. And you're like, where do I begin with this? You just begin. You just begin in one place. Oh, well, I can familiarize myself with Jesus. You can read the Gospels a little bit every day. Can you begin by forgiving your enemies? Can you begin by untangling systemic injustice in New York City in the housing market for, you know, probably not tomorrow, but you can start reading the Gospels. You can learn to throw and catch and hit, and then one day you'll know when a sacrifice bunt is called for. One day you'll know the, the larger strategies of the game, and you can begin practicing one at a time. I remember walking in my father's book, um, um, he had this, this area of our house where, where he lined with all the books he had read. And I remember walking in there and I was like, did you really read all of these? And he would be like, yes. And I'll be like, that's absolutely impossible. Not in a lifetime could I do it. You know how you begin? You pick up one title and you read it. Like if we look at the, the, the picture of life that Jesus lays out for us and we're like, this is overwhelming. Well, just begin. We talked last week about vision, intention, and means. You have to have a picture of what it looks like. 
You have to intend to follow it, and then you have to have a means of doing it. And the means is just simply to begin. Because here's the thing. We're not simply following a trajectory of human effort and discipline. God does accelerate our work. I want to give you a prophetic sense of where we are as a church. Like, I know that sounds so dramatic, and we're basically out of time, but... 2017 and 2018 were the hardest years of my personal life. And there were massive amounts of difficulty in our church. We, we, we separated as Trinity Grace of 10 congregations into, into, into something different. We went through the most challenging issue of member conflicts we've ever had in our church. And we went through absolutely horrifically tragic loss as we lost some children. And my life just went into a spin of like, I do not know how to deal with this. I do not know what, what, what to do. Like God would, I, I don't blame God. God was so gracious in so many of those moments all through. But there was like a pain across our church. And what it did was it slowly turned us inward. Pain does that. It begins to like, it's really hard to think about loving your neighbor when your own house is in crisis. And so we, we turned inward a little bit. And I want to tell you, since the beginning of 2019, it's not like those things are gone. Specifically, I feel like the word spoke to us, you are a church that has been acquainted with grief. You know who else was acquainted with grief? Jesus. That's one of the definitions of who he is. It's a label over his life, someone acquainted with grief. But you know what else is true about Jesus? But anointed with joy. And I felt like God said to our church, you have been acquainted with grief and you're never gonna forget that. It's always gonna be part of your story and that's beautiful because that expands your compassion when you deal with someone else in pain. But you're also anointed with joy and you're not called to live in this old season forever. You're coming into a new season. And 2019, I, I, I went to this, this prayer gathering in February and these spiritual mothers prophesied over our church that it was a new season and that the pain we had gone through, and this, if this weirds you out, let's have coffee about it. But it was like, no, we are going into a new season as a church. And that season, apart from being the lifting of some deep sorrow and the healing of some wounds, is a turning outward. We have forgotten how to care for the poor well. There's been a few who've carried the torch in prayer for us. There's been a few who've carried the torch in radical generosity of their life, but we have to do it as a church. Let me tell you, it's not enough to show up at 1045 a couple of times a month for church. We have to be love in action as a community. We are the body of Christ. Is there coherence between his head and his body? We have to turn outward. It's central to our vision over the next 10 years that we be love in action as a people. And I wanna tell you this, a life of joy is a life of love. A life of misery is a life of selfishness. And in the moment, nothing is more attractive than selfishness. But if you will let it die, you can come alive to something new. Jesus said that. If you'll deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me, if you'll be like a seed falling in the ground and die, you will become something new. How is it even possible? If you love me, keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. 
The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be with you. We don't just do this by our own willpower. We do it by surrendering to the life of the Spirit. That is our force. We're hoping that you'll see, we wanna live into our name, Trinity, Grace, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit shows up, Jesus is lifted up and love is expressed. When the gifts of the Spirit are at work, love is being expressed. When the fruit of the Spirit is being, is being demonstrated, love is being expressed. Over and over again, you see this. So how do we do it? It's not just by willpower. It's not just by inspiration. It's by, on a daily basis, practicing the spiritual life by the power of the Spirit. This is how we grow into this. So the last thing I'll mention before we go to the table, what are your opportunities to love? I just, I'm not gonna give you all of them, i just give you a couple. One is to share the gospel. And I'm starting with that one because I think for many of us that one feels like let me serve at a soup kitchen all day. <laughs> but let me talk to a coworker about Jesus? I don't know, it's too weird. So let me give you, right, Alpha is coming October 22nd. <laughs> yeah, you knew I was going there, relax. You can invite someone to Alpha and say, hey, listen, it's a free rotisserie chicken meal. It's wonderful. I'll go with you. If you hate it, let's leave and we'll go somewhere else. You can ask someone to come to Alpha. It starts on October 22nd. Another is you can exercise your spiritual gifts. There's a bunch, a bunch of them listed in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. And in the middle, 13 is all about love because they're all about love. Um, Ephesians 5 is another gift of spiritual, uh, sp spiritual gifts, but some of you have gifts of faith, gifts of mercy, gifts of leadership, gifts of discernment. Some of you are prophetic. Some of you have incredible wisdom. Some of you are radically generous. You can speak the heart of God. Some of you are gifted in praying and believing for healing. Some of you are tremendous comforts just by your presence. Some of you are gifted in teaching. All the spiritual gifts are active ways to love. Be committed to the poor. Right? If you gave, like, I remember thinking this on my commute when I had to go into Manhattan every week. I was like, if I give away money to every person who asks me, I'm out of money, right? But, like, what if you, you said for, for a season of time, I'm not going to ignore someone who asks me for something? Right? Maybe you can only do it for one commute. Like, if anyone approaches me today, God, I'm going to try to take the opportunity and see where it leads, whether that's a few dollars or trying to direct them to some help or just listening and giving a smile. Like, what, what does it mean to be committed to the poor? What does it mean for us to partner with the organizations that we're partnering with as a church? How can you get behind that? I promise you there's a place for you. We can't lay it all out in one sermon, but there's a place for you. Will you make a heart-level commitment to the poor? Will you show love to your neighbor? Here's the thing, there's, there's a pattern of life which we can label devotion and then there's particular moments which you can label discernment. Will I shape my pattern of life around love and will I ask what does is, what is the expression of Jesus look like in this context through my life and DNA and story? So my question to us as a church is will we live a life of love and action? not simply by our own willpower, but by the Spirit. And I wanna tell you, no matter how overwhelming it feels, you can begin today. I'm gonna pray. Heavenly Father, 
Please help us. Lord, even just as I'm praying right now, I sense that what, I'm, what I feel, maybe many others feel, which is I want to love you. And I have the smallest spark of desire, maybe the tiniest little flame, and it is small, but it is real, where I want to love you. And I want to grow in what that would look like. And I know, God, that you don't despise that small longing in my heart. You don't say, I, it must be bigger or it's not enough and you're not smacking my hand or, or wanting to just express disappointment. You're wanting to draw me towards you and I believe that you want that for, for our body. So I pray for each person who has the smallest longing to love you, that you would embrace them, that you would empower them by the Holy Spirit, that you would show them the small, direct, everyday commitments that they can make to begin training in this way of love. I pray over the next 10 years you would make this true of our church, that we would delight in your presence, we would be formed in the way of Jesus, and we would outflow your love to our neighbors like we never have before. Show us how to worship, how to pour out not just in our words, but in our lives. Take these small offerings of our hearts this morning and direct them, receive them, pour life and love over them, heal them. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, I want to invite you to stand. We're going to worship in song. Every week we respond in a couple of ways. We do, we worship in song. We also worship in receiving nourishment from the table. That Jesus' broken body and shed blood is our, is our healing and our life and is also our example that we are gonna be broken and poured out for our neighbors. So as you come and receive the meal this morning, as you identify with Jesus and, and you remember the sacrifice he's made on the cross, you pour out your heart and you say, God, would you make me like this meal? Would you let me be broken and poured out for my neighbors? As you take the meal, I want to invite you to make a small commitment to say, I want to be love in action in this space, in my neighborhood, in my workplace. Some of you, God specifically put something on your heart and you need to stop for a minute on these rugs and just kneel down and pray because it's more comfortable than your wooden chair and sometimes our posture matters. Some of you need to pray with people who are up here because we're not doing this alone and you need to remember that. There's people who, who want to embrace you and hold you and listen no matter what it is. If it's the best of things or the worst of things, we're here for one another in that. So we're going to worship. We're going to come forward and receive the meal of communion. We're going to pray as the Spirit leads. We're going to make commitments to love together this morning. Church, as you're ready, come forward and receive the meal. Let's worship and let's pray. In Jesus' name, amen.